name is Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse and I live in North Yorkshire. Welcome to this final edition of Nursing Matters for 2021. We started the podcast way back in the spring to talk about the things that really matter to nurses and why nursing matters, not just to health and care services, but to society as a whole. As the year draws to its close, the Nursing Matters team wanted to share with you some of our highlights from the year. Along with Professor Alison Leary and other co-hosts from the Professional Nursing Committee, I've explored and learnt more about many of the major issues currently affecting nursing. We've heard from some great guests, most of them nurses, but also from critical friends and commentators on the profession. Our very first episode began with Alison and me talking to Lou Carhill, clinical coordinator of one of the first COVID-19 mass vaccination centres. We discussed the role of nurses in leading the vaccination programme and the value of nursing expertise in combating misinformation about vaccines. It's been really frustrating. Like we, we had somebody come in who was really, really distressed about having her vaccine. The immuniser came to see me to say, I don't feel comfortable giving a vaccine to this lady. She says she's having it under duress. And when I spoke to her, she had so many questions. She had a big list of things. And by the time we talked through everything, you know, and this wasn't somebody that was anti-vax. This was somebody who saw a post on Facebook that worried them. They went down a rabbit hole of misinformation on social media and almost didn't get vaccinated because of it. So I was really pleased she had it. But on reflection, I'm actually really quite angry because she really is a victim of this anti-vaccine campaign. It goes to show the importance of nursing, though, doesn't it, that you could address her fears and meet all her information needs so that she felt comfortable having the vaccine. It really does show the value of what you do. Yeah, one of the interesting things she said was when I said, you know, your concerns are completely valid, was she said, you're the first person to say that. Everybody says I'm stupid for thinking this. And I think we, it's very easy to dismiss people that have these wild thoughts and and pieces of information as hysterical or being stupid but you know it's genuine concern to people it's really important as nurses we validate those fears and listen to them the pandemic has affected every area of nursing including nurse education 2021 saw many nursing degree courses return to some degree of normality but some students still feel that they're not getting the opportunities they need to develop both academically and clinically. In April, Dr Sarah Burden from Leeds Beckett University explained how she feels higher education should be supporting both nursing students and the staff in placement areas to make sure students get the most out of their clinical experience so that they don't just feel like another pair of hands. I think we've got to Sometimes remember what we mean by supernumerary. Yeah, you know, the, uh, the NMC is clear that they're not counted in numbers. And certainly that's something that as a university, we all monitor that very, very carefully. But perhaps we've got to look, because yes, I sometimes hear students coming back and saying, I've just worked as a healthcare assistant. And so you've got to unpick what does that mean? How are you supported in that role? How can we help practitioners? What can we do as education programmes to support students at the same time? So how do we design our programmes so that students still feel supported in that messiness of practice, if you like? 
So there is something for us to ensure that students are supported in learning, particularly when we know that practice settings are challenged. Community nursing has been central to the response to the COVID-19 pandemic, yet this area of the profession often feels unseen, undervalued and is undeniably under-resourced. Professor Julie Green and I heard from Crystal Eldman of the Queen's Nursing Institute as she shared her insights into how the pandemic has shone a spotlight on community services and the ways in which nurses have risen to this challenge whilst the pressures on them have continued to grow. So I think what the pandemic's revealed is the critical nature of the nurse's contribution within the community and within the care home sector and within general practice. I think it's provided more exposure and more of a spotlight into what nurses are doing outside of the hospital as well as inside. In the way in which it's excelled has been to, to be able to rise to that challenge and to be able to accommodate the needs of people in the community and to find ways in which you, and nurses, as you know, Julie, in the, in the community, work in the community are incredibly creative yeah. and innovative and find ways of dealing with what's in front of you. The unpredictable nature of, of community nursing work is something that we embrace. That's where nursing in the community has truly excelled. Nurses in the community are part of their community. And they've worked with them to find ways to address the increased need. In an issue that always generates debate, our guest in May, Leanne Patrick, shared evidence about misogyny in healthcare and the low value that society still gives to work done by women. When women enter fields in greater numbers, um, what they find is that pay declines. And that's often for the very same jobs that men were doing before. And I think it was a professor at New York University also looked at the US census data for about a 50-year period um, between 1950 and I think uh, 2000 and found this pattern was replicated over and over and over again that when more men enter a profession, um, the kind of pay goes up, uh, the work conditions, working conditions improve and women tend to get pushed out. And when women enter a profession, the kind of reverse tends to happen. And it isn't even really about the kind of jobs that women do. So biologists, for example, saw a pay decline in this period of, of 18%. And the reverse, again, is true. So computer programming was once this kind of predominantly female role that was really interestingly seen as this kind of menial job that women were doing. But since more men have entered that profession, pay has increased dramatically. It's attracted a lot more prestige um, and women have been pushed out. So there's a lot going on here, uh, I think, uh, more than kind of notions of images of the profession even. It's actually what the data tells us is that it, it doesn't matter what women are doing. The kind of common theme here is that it's women that are undervalued, whatever work it is that they do. Our understanding of long COVID has developed over the last year, and the reaction to this episode proved it's a significant issue for the profession and for patients. Dr Elaine Maxwell from the National Institute for Health and Research gave us a greater insight into this complex condition and why nursing should be taking a greater role in managing it. She also talked about the disproportionate impact it has on women and the knock-on effect on society. 
I think it is beyond doubt now that for a very large number of people, there is a clear physical pathology. You just have to know where to look for it. And we've been looking in the wrong direction for a lot of things. This is not going to be a disease that you can go and get a course of X drug for eight days and then you'll be better. So this is very much in the long-term conditions disease. And I, I think that nursing should have a really important role. But I don't see nursing in that space. I, I don't see nurses doing research on long COVID. I don't see nurses coming forward and saying, this is the service model that we can contribute to, because there will have to be a different service model. The NHS does not have the capacity to deal with a million extra people. We know that there is a huge burden on people with long COVID, but bearing in mind the people most likely to have it are working aged women there's going to be a much wider burden because these are the prime unpaid carers for both children and elderly relatives. And if you have this woman who's sandwiched in the middle, who can no longer care for her own children, but perhaps more importantly, her elderly relatives, that's going to put a huge strain on society in general and social care. We might see a whole load of people who are managing independently with the help of their family who now need to go into older people's social care. So huge impacts on the whole of society, not just the individual. The current nursing workforce crisis has been a recurring theme over the year. In May, I asked Professor Jane Wall, an international expert in nursing workforce policy, about the impact of poor staffing levels on healthcare provision and patient outcomes. When there aren't enough nurses on duty, then literally patients don't get as much time, whether that be um, in the community or, or in hospitals. So you, you get less time, so less care gets delivered. So each sort of reduction in the amount of nursing presence means a reduction to what it is that patients get. And the research shows that that has then a very direct effect on the outcomes of patients. So when we look at mortality rates and we take into account case mixes so that we can adjust, so that we're comparing like with like, we see that actually in environments that have got lower staffing levels, lower registered nurse staffing levels, more patients die from what should be, you know, what are essentially avoidable causes, because that's death not by their condition, but that's deaths that have arisen because of the care they've received or not received. Of course, that's the most sort of extreme type of outcome. But we see across the research all sorts of different outcomes, be they uh, complications or pressure ulcers or risk of sepsis, all sorts of different things increase because essentially when there's fewer nurses, it's not just the, the amount of, of, sort of more transactional care, the, like the doing of things, but it's the fact that it, there is also less surveillance and monitoring happening. So that's then allows potentially patients to deteriorate and for that deterioration not to be picked up in time and for reaction not to have been uh, put in place. And then the other factor, I think, is that it's not just the impact directly on patients, but there's the indirect effect because when nurses can't deliver care the way they would like to, when they are compromising care every shift, that's really negative for morale. You don't go into nursing to cut corners and to deliver bad care and to walk away with that. So to keep on having staff in that position where they feel like they're 
they're compromising daily. That does have a very corrosive effect, I think, on nurses' own sense of pride and sense of satisfaction. And of course, then that has an effect on whether they want to stay in nursing, whether they want to stay in their job. So then there's the indirect effect as maybe more nurses become burnt out, more nurses just decide to vote with their feet and leave. Journalist Sean Linton, now health editor at the Sunday Times, and one of those critical friends of nursing, joined us in June, and we talked more about the link between nurse staffing levels and patient safety, and the need for both an evidence base and transparency in workforce planning. It's frustrating for me as a health journalist in this role to see the the evidential test for anything that comes for nurse safe staffing and and safety just seems to be far higher than some other interventions that we see rolled out in the NHS and you know it's it's really fascinating to me that things like personal health budgets and and other sort of you know the reforms of the NHS into integrated care systems which are going ahead right now even before the government's legislations come forward um and there's no there's sort of far less evidence test for those than than there is for something that's safety rise and I can understand that to some degree in the sense that we need to be sure before we start making changes that can impact safety but I can't help but feel that there's there's a a sort of perception of nursing and a perception of the NHS workforce certainly in in the treasury and maybe in some uh, offices in NHS England that they'll never be enough we'll never get the right answer we will never be able to say this is fixed so in a sense there's a kind of learned helplessness there that that why why push further why invest more the much derided 50,000 extra nurses from the government is actually a really interesting move by the government and and that that puts nursing actually front and center on a political platform i think my problem with that is i've never seen any modeling that underpins that number i don't know where it came from other than was it just simply plucked out because it was a round number and and that's what I think, you know, where's the evidence for all of this? We should be guided by these kinds of things and we just don't seem to be. So we we constantly lurch, boom and bust and uh, initiative and, and uh, things that come and go uh, and rather than having a considered plan. And, and actually, I think one way of tackling that might well just be the proposal uh, in the Health Committee's report this week around requiring health education and to publish and, and make public assessments for workforce planning over the next five ten years um, and to to hold them to account to that 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 could actually help to change the debate on this learning disability nursing is a branch of our profession under significant pressure yet nurses have a key role in ensuring that people with learning difficulties have a say in how care is delivered we heard from Scott Watkin, Head of Engagement at the charity Seeability, about the importance of listening to and hearing their voices. I think people with learning disabilities now have a bigger voice, but whether we're listened to, to being able to get the healthcare needs that we need, that's another matter, because we're still seeing the scandals, the abuse of Winterbourne View that happened over 10 years ago now, and the Walton Hall scandal, and we're still noting that people like Oliver McGowan, 
who died unnecessarily in hospital and staff failed them, that really lessons still need to be learned from that. From and, and actually we should be understanding and talking to people with learning disabilities and putting them at the centre of their healthcare needs and asking them and giving them the time to understand what is needed for them to live a good, healthy life instead of the assumptions that are always being made. Why is the title of nurse not protected in law? We heard from Alison and our guest, Professor June Gervin, about the risks to patient safety of the current position and why they're campaigning for change. A petition calls for um, legal protection of the term. So lots of people use it as a verb and that's fine. It's not an issue. It's really around people that are claiming to provide services or advice in the context of health or social care that we'd really ask for protection for. We published a paper in 2017 which showed the titles were misused. Since then, I've had a steady stream of correspondence from the public or direct messages on Twitter from people that felt they've been deceived. I've also had uh, correspondence from people like support workers who felt they were being pressurised into claiming they were something they were not. And one of the things that I think has really struck me is how people like the recent nurse who's been struck off, the anti-vax nurse, have just declared they're going to still keep using the title. So what we'd, we'd be really looking for, and obviously a petition isn't legislation, it only asks for a, one request and it's up to legislators to see how it's actually done, but it really is to prevent fraud. Employers and individuals misusing the title and deceiving the public is the primary reason for it. You know, regulation is about protecting the public from the charlatan, you know, from the, the person who wants to mislead. Uh, it, that, it's one way of that protection. But it's also about, you know, you have to meet certain requirements in order to be placed on a register and be subject to, to that, the regulation that the, that the register provides. And without that preparation, you don't get there. So the the whole business of I know Alison was just talking about um, not using education as a as a as a marker. I think that you know that whole preparation thing is really important, and regulation is based on that whole preparation and and the continuing education and, and keeping up to date. So the responsibilities you have in law, if you like, as a regulated professional. I think that most professionals do understand them. But again, I think the public don't necessarily understand um, the difference between the regulated and the unregulated. And that's the accountability argument again, I think, is who they can take to task and who they can't take to task over work done or not done or outcomes achieved or not achieved. The COVID-19 pandemic has been an inevitable thread throughout Nursing Matters in 2021. In August, we invited the RCN's outgoing president, Professor Anne-Marie Rafferty, and our incoming president, Dr Janice Chafer, to reflect on leading the college and its members through a global pandemic. We heard about 
one nurse who's lived three months in a care home to so that she could be there for, for patients and protect her family. And care homes cracking down on agency nurses for that very reason and putting, you know, their their own staff under enormous strain. And another nurse who was on Women's Hour, I think, the other week, who'd lived nine months with her husband in a caravan to protect her mum who was living on the house. So, I mean, these are extraordinary stories. I just think that initial kind of response and what nurses were prepared to do and did was incredible. And it was our role really within the organisation to demonstrate that we were trying to, by putting pressure on the government, mainly and employers through the Health and Safety Executive and many other lobbying channels and this goes across the four countries, all of which had different types of experiences. And, and this guidance, you know, that was changing on a daily basis, I guess Kendall might have views on military operations as well and, and the analogy or appropriateness of it. But actually, I think that is something of which the college should be rightly proud. Part of the manifesto is reaching out to everybody that was involved and has been brought together because we, I talked about shared purpose, but people have come together in a way um, we knew that nurses would and could, but I think they are absolutely everywhere. And I think the following the pandemic is also going to be incredibly challenging. We're already hearing about the huge pressures that are there. So for me, part of the manifesto is recognising nurses are everywhere um, and I think everyone have their voice. I think areas like mental health, community services who have had to work in very different ways, trying to manage some very complex situations in a world where it's not so easy to be face to face with people. Not everyone can cope with the technology. So I stood for being president to to do whatever I can to try and give that wider voice so we don't always hear from every aspect of nursing so I spoke to some palliative care nurses and asked you know what they wanted from the RCN the message is, is that we need everyone to get involved and to to be able to help us recognize how we represent the kind of wider nursing family. The members of the RCN professional forums drive and influence much of the professional work of the college. Chair of the Forum Chairs Committee, Sally Bassett, captured the importance of professional activism when we talked in September. So if we think about activism as being conscious about making things better, about the way that we spot opportunities to make patient flow better, to advocate better to um, take some of the barriers away then that is being active and I think I probably sort of became a bit more comfortable with this idea of being politically active when I came to understand that politics in its I suppose purest definition is really about decisions around how to use scarce resource there's a limit of what's available, both in terms of time and money and expertise. And politics is really about making a decision on how we use that time um, and how we use that expertise. And of course, again, that's something that nurses do every day, you know, when they're planning a shift, when they're working out what the skill mix is going to be, when they're prioritising which patients get which piece of care first, 
we are making decisions about how to allocate resources. So once I became comfortable with that's what politics really means and party politics is an important part of that because we're electing a government to make a decision about how to how to allocate our, our country's resources. Once I got my head around that actually it's really about making decisions about how to provide the best care possible, I felt comfortable with owning the title of being professional activist because like many, I want to make a difference. I want to do the best that I can do and I want to be the best that I can be. And that's really what the college is about and that's certainly what the forums are about. Responding when things go wrong is a difficult but crucially important aspect of nursing and healthcare. I asked the chair of the charity Patient Safety Learning, Jonathan Hazan, who's an expert on data and incident reporting, about the importance of saying sorry when things do go wrong. And he shared his thoughts on how data is key to improving patient safety. What I have heard consistently from, from patients who've been harmed or who have lost relatives to harm is that what they want, what they wanted, was for someone to explain truthfully what happened, what went wrong, to apologise to them for that happening, and to let them know what is going to happen to make sure that this doesn't happen to anyone else. And it's when patients don't get that, that they they, they are driven to, to take alternative courses, such as you know, taking lawsuits out against the, the, the NHS. Uh, mm. And, you know, a lot of organisations go on the defensive when they are, uh, when they're criticised, when they're accused. And the worst uh, cases happen when the organisations aren't truthful about what happened and, and, and try and cover up. In October, Black History Month, I asked our guest, advanced nurse practitioner Bongi Sabanda, about structural racism within healthcare and what we as nurses should be doing to address the issue. Bongi, if it's sort of thinking why do you said it, it, it's so important for that Black History Month we focus on on those experiences, how, how can we use those to really, for the wider nursing community perhaps, to understand those experiences of structural racism and, and begin to do something about it? Sure. Um, there are always difficult conversations to have, but I think following what has happened with COVID and all the things we have seen happening following George Floyd over the last year uh, or so, it has made these conversations much more comfortable than they previously have been. So it is about having those conversations and being open to learn. Sometimes um, people do things unknowingly and they don't even realize the impact that is happening to them. So it's about challenging issues as we see them and um, having allies who also challenge these issues but organizations must take responsibility of really stamping on uh, racism and um, uh, ensuring that they are anti-racist organization that they are inclusive in every uh, step of uh, whatever their organizations uh, ethos are and whatever they are doing Later in October, we focused on feminism and welcomed back Leanne Patrick alongside feminist writer and campaigner Caroline Criado Perez. We talked about the enduring gender bias in healthcare and healthcare research and the impact this has on health outcomes for women. 
the heart attack symptoms that I had always heard about that are certainly emphasized in public health information that if you're experiencing pain in your chest and down your left arm, that means you're having a heart attack. And to discover that actually women, while they certainly can experience those those symptoms, they don't necessarily experience those symptoms. And women can more commonly present with breathlessness, nausea, fatigue, what feels like indigestion. And so women don't realize they're having a heart attack. And that is such a massive failure of public health information. But even more shocking to me was the research showing that actually healthcare professionals were not adequately trained in spotting these symptoms, leading women to be much more likely to be misdiagnosed if they have a heart attack. So in the UK, women are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed if they have a heart attack. And part of the reason for that is that their symptoms don't necessarily conform to what are thought of as the classic symptoms. As I continued my research, male presentations of disease were seen as the default, were seen as the classic human presentation of a disease. And in any way that the female body might deviate, that was seen as atypical. And in fact, the more common female symptoms are exactly called that. They're called atypical symptoms. As COP26 was taking place in November, we heard from Dr Richard Smith, Chair of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change, that this is now the biggest challenge facing healthcare globally. And we talked about the impact of health services on the environment. We heard from Rose Gallagher, who leads on climate change and sustainability at the RCN, about how we can bring climate activism into our nursing practice. If we were to lump together the carbon footprint of all health systems, then healthcare would be the fifth largest emitter in the world. So a much bigger emitter than Britain alone. In the US, which of course is one of the biggest emitters, the healthcare system which, as we know, is a rather profligate, out-of-control system, is 12% of the carbon emissions of the US. In Britain, the NHS and social care accounts for about 5%, but it's the single biggest public sector uh, emitter. And what's really disturbing is that if you look at what's happening with most health systems, and this, this was data included in the Lancet Countdown, then you see that most health systems, including that in the US, have rising carbon emissions, which is clearly crazy when this is the major threat to health in the world today. So if you take personal protective equipment, for example, which has been a real contentious issue during the pandemic, if we even think simply about gloves, how we describe, for example, standard and transmission-based precautions will direct how many gloves are are used. So if we keep it really simple around blood and body fluids where we know there there is evidence to support the safety of healthcare workers, then we not only improve compliance, but we we reduce inappropriate use and wastage where they are not required, for example, in changing a bed, holding somebody's hand, helping to feed a patient. Those are not evidence-based scenarios But those that use and implement the policies at the clinical level interpret the way that we write policies to mean that that it's acceptable to do that. So we've got a lot of 
challenge to do amongst ourselves to how can we write policies and procedures in a way that protects those we need to protect and reduce risk, but actually not inadvertently drive unnecessary use of items. Yeah, so having those conversations and trying to influence those policies could be our way of of trying to bring climate activism into, into our practice, perhaps. Our final episode of 2021 explored the Health and Care Bill, perhaps the most significant legislative opportunity to shape the future of the profession in recent times. Andy Cowper from Health Policy Insight and Lara Carmona, the RCN's Associate Director of Policy and Public Affairs, talked about the need for change in health and care services and why the government must address the nursing workforce crisis as a priority. The key issue is that until you fix the workforce crisis, and and firstly, you give current staff who are very overstretched, very stressed, often traumatised by experiences they've had working through the pandemic. And Laura touched earlier on the issue of of moral injury, very, very important issue for, for the workforce in general. Effectively, you can tip in as much money as you like to the budget, but if you actually haven't got the workforce on which to spend it, then it, 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 things are not going to start getting better at a particularly helpful rate. Nurses and nursing staff and the college's members have known they've been in a crisis for a number of years. And we've had a vacancy rate in England at about 10% in the NHS, but not enough action's been taken. So I think that given the fact that over decades there have been workforce issues in health and public health and in social care, the scale of the crisis and the lack of sustained political response over a number of governments demonstrates that the existing powers and duties in law are just not fit for purpose. And I know our elected members in particular have been really clear that patient safety should be the primary concern of every legislator, right? Just as it is for every nurse and every nursing staff member. So putting accountability in law with the Secretary of State for sufficient provision of the workforce should be the primary intention of anyone who cares about this bill, right? And our population. That brings us to the end of our review of this year, but we'll be back in 2022. And we'd love to know what you would like us to talk about. Tell us what you're interested in or concerned about in the world of nursing by tweeting us at the RCM with the hashtag Nursing Matters. We'll do our best to cover them in future episodes of the podcast. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, where, of course, you can hear every episode in its entirety. And if you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word about Nursing Matters. And so for this year, thank you to all my co-hosts, and to every one of our special guests. Thank you for listening, stay safe, and we'll see you next year.